the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, caught between an asteroid and a hard space, surrey down to the fifth dimension for a stone soul picnic. Lavender Paladins in Pallid White Neverlands. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All right now. Hey, welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. And I'm Bain Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio. This time on the podcast, we talk with Wen Spencer on her new book, Project Elf Home, which is a collection of novellas and short stories, all set in Wen's Elf Home series, with novels such as Tinker, Wolf Who Rules, Wood Sprites, and others. Uh, Wen discusses the ins and outs of Elf Home and talks about some of the great heroines and heroes she's provided in this uh, lively collection. Project Elf Home includes a novella I particularly have great fondness for, Pittsburgh Backyard and Garden, which originally appeared on Bain.com. And of course we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. That all's coming up. Now here's the news. Wow, have we got free web content for you this month. It's a cornucopia and a smorgasbord all in one, or vice versa. For fiction, we have three stories and the conclusion of an epic poem. What are some of the stories, Christopher? First off, there's Rock Meet Hard Place, Part 1 and 2. Both are set in the world of the Dead Six Military Adventure series by Larry Correa and Mike Coopery. Part 1 is by new writer Peter Nealon. And the second part is by Mike Cooper himself. Together, it's a Dead Six novella to get you ready for the October appearance of Alliance of Shadows, the third and final book in the Dead Six series. What are those novellas about, Christopher? Well, Frank Dragic and his team of mercenaries are used to jobs where the payouts are big and it's best not to ask too many questions. He's just finished one such job on the Chinese-Kazakhstani border. Then he gets a call from the office. They've got a new assignment for him. They want him to find a man named Anders and bring him in, dead or alive. Dragic knows Anders. They have a history, and Dragic would like nothing more than to see Anders dead. That's what worries him, because in Dragic's business, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, and lies can get you killed. Yikes. Also at Bane.com is the winner of the Bane Fantasy Adventure Award a yearly contest with the award given out at Gen Con in Indianapolis. Who's the winner? This year's winner is The Lavender Paladin by Sean Snyder. We have that first place story for you now at Bane.com, so check it out for some high fantasy adventure. And as if that weren't enough for your reading enjoyment, there's more. The final installment of our great epic poem by renowned poet Frederick Turner is now at Bane.com. Apocalypse, an epic poem, comes to a rousing conclusion. I want to urge you to check this out. Um, it's an entire epic poem that's science fiction. And if you missed the serialization, the ebook version of the poem will be available starting September 22nd at Bain eBooks and at eBook retailers everywhere. And wait, there's even more. We have free nonfiction for September. 
It's Radium Girls of Science and Science Fiction by longtime nuclear safety engineer and science writer Jim Bill, whose work we featured before. Mary Curie is probably the most famous woman to work in the field of nuclear science, unless, of course, you count Dr. Christmas Jones, the Bond girl portrayed by Denise Richards in The World is Not Enough. But Curie and Jones are far from the only two women, fictional or otherwise, to work in the field of nuclear science. In this month's nonfiction essay, nuclear engineer Jim Beale traces the history of women in the field of nuclear science, in the laboratory, and in the pages of science fiction and stories. And we have... Uh... A nice picture of Denise Richards to accompany the piece. <laughs> so sum it up, Christopher. What have we got at Bain.com? Rock Meet Hard Place, Parts 1 and 2 by Peter Nealon and Mike Coopery. The Lavender Paladin by Sean Snyder. Apocalypse, an epic poem's final installment by Frederick Turner. And Radium Girls of Science and Science Fiction by Jim Beale are all available to read for free at Bain.com. Check them all out. It's good, good stuff. I want to welcome Wen Spencer to the podcast. Hi, Wen. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me. I'm always happy to have a chance to talk to you. Well, Wen Spencer is the creator of the contemporary fantasy science fiction hybrid Elf Home series. She's the author of science fiction novel Endless Blue. Tinker, the first novel in the Elf Home saga, garnered a uh, John W. Campbell Award for Wen and a Sapphire Award as well. She's also the author of contemporary fantasy novel Eight Million Gods and upcoming The Black Wolves of Boston, which I haven't read yet and I'm really looking forward to. Tony says it's great. Wen lives in beautiful Hawaii, fairly close to a volcano, which must add some excitement to each day. We can maybe ask her about that. The Elf Home series includes Tinker, Wolf Who Rules, Elf Home, Wood Sprites, and now at Booksellers Everywhere is Project Elf Home a collection of some really wonderful short stories and novellas and uh, just pieces that flesh out the Elf Home series background and introducing many cool characters from all walks of life. So when Project Elf Home is sort of a glorious, crazy quilt of all sorts of faucets of um, Elf Home, it's got some larger pieces such as several complete novellas and short stories that is kind of the main fabric of the book. It also has development from earlier to later times, I think, running through it. Can you tell us some of what is in Project Elf Home and how you decided to put it together? Um, yeah, um, Tinker introduced readers to the world of Elf Home, and the other books, the follow-up books, added other character point of views, uh, Wingwolf, Oil Can, Tommy, and Louise. Those five people were just a few that live on the planet. And because they're very intertwined, they show a very narrow slice of life. I wanted to expand on the universe by showing more point of views. But I didn't really want to go into full novels for every single point of view. Um, it was a way to show lots of different facets of the uh, world. Now, is, am I right in surmising that it, it has a chronological organization as well? Yeah. That seemed to be the, the easiest way to keep the readers on track where everything tails in and out of one another. Yeah. 
So Elf Home is a world where magic works and elves rule. Uh, in fact, they have quite a complicated canon, clan and caste system. Um, well, maybe we should go back to the beginning for our listeners who don't know the series completes ins and outs and, and get to the metaphysics even. We start in the near future, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with Tinker. So there's a science fiction element. It's the near future. But then things go really sideways. Can you sort of give us that broad premise? And then we can maybe talk about the elves. Yeah, uh, the broad, broad vision for this is that there's multiple universes which are mere reflections of each other. There's four so far in play. Um, Our world is between the world of elves um, and the world of the Oni. There's also a world of dragons. At one time, it was possible to travel back and forth between the universes via natural, magical gates found inside the caves. When the elves realized that the caves would allow the Oni to invade their universe, they destroyed all those natural connections. There was a brilliant young elf that had been visiting Earth when this happened, and he was trapped in France. Fast forward hundreds of years, and one of his descendants had figured out a way to combine magic with technology to create a mechanical gateway. He wanted to visit Elfholm. His gate, though, was flawed. When it is turned on, it kidnaps the city of Pittsburgh off of Earth and transports it to Elfholm. When the gate is turned off, Pittsburgh returns to Earth. Since this opens up an entire new universe to humans, they decide to set up a schedule where the city travels back and forth between the universes, like a massive yo-yo. There are all sorts of secret agendas involved, which which at the start of Tinker have reached a critical turning point. The Oni are poised to take over Elf Home using Pittsburgh and Earth as a staging ground. Uh, So why... um why would we be on the side of Elfholm if if they, I mean, and they are sort of our, <laughs> the good guys in a way, in a sense, including uh, humans. Elfholm is a world where magic works, elves rule. Um, they have this complicated clan and caste system that's kind of alien to some humans. Can you give us a, a short lesson, or, or maybe it's just alien to American humans. <laughs> Can you give us maybe a short lesson in how it works and why the elves are the way they are? Um, yeah, um, well, at one time, the elves were just this, a bunch of nomadic tribes scattered across the plant, their planet. Uh, each tribe had their own religion and a set of magic based on one of the four elements of earth, wind, fire, and water. And then a fifth tribe, uh, which is now known as the Skin Clan, had been practicing bioengineering using magic. And they used magic to create monsters that could be used as weapons. They, they created the frost-breathing wards, uh, the man-eating black willow trees that can walk around and grab people. Um, they created the massive waverins that could carry off an elephant. They used these creations to enslave the other tribes. 
and they started to experiment on them. They were looking for ways to make themselves gods without putting themselves at risk. So all the elves benefited certain improvements, and one of the improvements was immortality. But the skin clan um, treated the rest of the elves like animals. They would breed them, they would do experiments on them, they would kill off their failures. They really were horrible people. Uh, And the caste were set up by them as certain breeding pools. So there's the standard warrior caste and the pleasure slaves and a superior warrior caste and so on. Um, The slaves hated this, so they rebelled. And they used a secret uh, weapon that they had developed. It it was the spell stones. And the spell stones are genetically locked to one caste so that the caste can use these extremely powerful spells. And that is the Demana caste, which are the rulers. But um, as a kind of a influence of the creation, they kind of have this role that the only reason why the Demana are in charge are that they're, they have a certain moral uh, obligation to protect the people under them. And if they don't do that, they're basically put down by the warrior, the superior warrior caste of Shikaska. Mm-hmm. They also um, got pointy ears bred in, right? Pardon? They also got their pointy ears from this this breeding. Oh yes, they got their pointy ears. They also got um, the ability to heal faster than humans do, and much of their. Um, the genetic-based illnesses that we have have been weeded out. Um, they're not very susceptible to cancer. Um, they don't have certain genetic disorders that we have. Anybody that was a carrier was killed. And they're immortal. Yeah, and they're immortal. Yeah. Um, so, you, well, let's talk about the book. Um, you start out Project Elf Home with the origin tale of two of the characters who are associated with um, Wolf Who Rules Wind, uh, who we colloquially refer to as Wind Wolf in the books, right? Mm-hmm. A, a main character in the series, along with Tinker. These are our singing Storm of Fire, uh, nicknamed Discord, or Lady Discord, and, and Galloping Storm Horse, who's Pony in the books. Who are these two? And uh, what are they to Wolf Who Rules Wind? Well, both Storm Song and Pony are Shikaska State cast. Um, both Storm Song and Pony are Shikaska's cast. Uh, the Queen's Oracle, Pure Radiance, saw the coming war between the Elves and the Oni. And she realized that Windwolf and Tinker would be pivotal for the events and that they would need support in order to succeed. So she engineered these two warriors to be born. 
Storm Song is Pure Radiance's daughter via Sword Strike, who's head of the Shikaska cast. And Pure Radiance is the Oracle herself. Yes, she's the greatest Oracle alive. Um, in Storm Song, there's a warrior who has a magical ability to see the future who's raised in the highest court, so she knows all about politics. And yet she's kind of disconnected from everything because she's a mutt. Um, she's from two different castes, which is really rare uh, among the elves. Why is that rare, and why is it uh, many times bad, at least for some of the characters in, in Project Elf Home? Being, well, a, being a mutt, that it's, is. It's rare because when the elves were made immortal, they were also um, given ended up with very low fertility. So... Most of the elves that are still alive fought against the skin clan. So basically the skin clan was controlling the breeding for a long period of time, and they didn't want mutts. So they had created all these pure castes, and they were keeping them controlled. And then they killed off the skin clan, but they kind of had that mental... Um, conditioning uh, of no, you breed with your own kind, and it took them a while to get out of that. And there's other place um, the the two places where it's considered bad is the demana because demanas have the spell stones locked to them, and they don't want mutts running around. Um, because they might be able to use the spell stones. And if the parentage isn't tracked, it means that somebody else could get hold of one of these mutts and use them to get the spell stones. So for that cast, mutts are bad. And then the Shikaska, um, which are the holy warriors, it's one of these, well, first off, they have certain um, things to get because of who they are. Uh, they're, the, they're considered the highest caste, and by law, they're not constrained by law. They're above the law. And you don't really want somebody who kind of has free reign when they're not set up to have that. It's it's hard to break down to one sentence or two. Yeah. Well, um, the Pony and uh, Stormsong are are basically elf teenagers still, or just barely adults, right? Yeah. Um, their Pony just turned 100 at the beginning of Tinker. Um, he's only like a month into what they call the majority. Um, so basically, he's just turned 18. Um, and Stormsong is, I think, 214 or something like that. Uh, so at 100, she became 18. And 100 gives her another year or so um, in terms of human life. So she's 1920. 
there um why does um wolf who rules when take take them in in a particular what's the relationship between that sort of triad of people of elves when wolf himself is kind of a unique person because his parents were political marriage his father is the head of the wind clan and his mother was the daughter of the king of the fire clan and uh he is the only elf that can cast spells from both the fire clan and the wind clan um, spellstones. And that kind of makes him a mutt, even though other people don't actually term it that. And so when he started building uh, his power base, he saw Stormsong and Pony both as um, kindred spirits because Stormsong is too cast. She's the oracle cast and she's the warrior cast, the holy warrior cast. And Pony's grandparents were from two different clans. So they're people from outside the normal curve. They are, um, there are several, well, let's talk about the, um, the, a little bit less about the, uh, the overall and, and some of the particulars of the stories. There are several novellas in the book that we are proud to have originally published on the Bain website as part of our monthly, uh, fiction offerings. One of my favorites is Bear Snow Falling on Fairy Wood. This one is told through the eyes of a, a character, Law, who's a human who has adapted to being a citizen in New Pittsburgh of the Elf Home era. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this story um, and about Bear Snow and, and, and what developed? Okay. Well, with Project Elf Home, I really want to explore all the little niches of Pittsburgh. This is a whole society of people trying to deal with the fact that they live on an alien planet 90% of the time. And coincidentally, I moved to Hawaii, and it's an island out in the middle of nowhere with a massive clash of cultures. You've got the native Hawaiians, and then this huge influx of Japanese and Chinese and Koreans, and then you have... Argentinians who came over and Portuguese and it's this weird melding pot of different cultures and because we're out in the middle of where, nowhere with these different cultures there's a lot of kind of hole in wall restaurants and there's people that make their living by going out and gathering food and selling them to these hole-in-the-wall restaurants. They'll do things like they'll go out and they'll climb random coconut trees and pick coconuts for the restaurant, or they fish by standing on the shore throwing out nets, or, you know, go out in the surf and pick up the uh, the mussels stuck to the stones or they walk into these big empty lots and they pick greens. It's surprising. Um, 
what you uh, they're having a flash flood warning uh oh it's not a flash lava warning is it uh, yeah uh, well we're getting two hurricanes coming down on us oh, dear. the first one's going to hit tomorrow night um so um but you know we're out in the middle of nowhere and there's these people who who make their living gathering food together and I thought this would be very cool to have an, as something that goes on in Pittsburgh because logically, yes, for fresh food, since the city would only come and go once a month, for fresh food, you would need the food there in Pittsburgh. Um, and Law herself is based on a very colorful woman I met here in Hawaii. His mother is Chinese, Portuguese, Hawaiian. And her father is a professional Bigfoot hunter. <laughs> and my friend has all these great stories of being dragged around Utah, where she grew up, hunting Bigfoot. And you would make these plaster casts of footprints and butt prints. Uh, apparently, Bigfoot liked to sit down and get all comfy and make leaves behind these very distinctive butt marks. <laughs> and... Uh, I, she just cried to have a story about her. So I decided Law was a rendition of my friend um, who was a forager. And I wasn't sure what to do with her, and I wanted to pair her up with Bear Snow because I wanted to use the water plan that I hadn't used before. But I really wasn't sure what to do. And... Uh, I happened to be watching all these videos with porcupines. They're, they're really wonderful to watch. They, they make the oddest noises, and they're amazingly cute. And at the same time, you can't touch them. <laughs> so they make a really odd pet. And just one day, it all clicked in my brain. It was a lesbian, an elf, and a porcupine walk into a hardware store. And I'm like, that's it. It makes sense now. Uh, well, uh, the uh, the porcupine is an elf home porcupine, so it's giant, right? Yes, it's a massive, massive thing. It, it, it's like the size of a Rottweiler. And he is Law's pet. Yes, he's Law's pet, um, Brizzy, or Brisbane. Um she followed him when he was a baby. He's bonded to her in that he sees her as his, but he doesn't really cooperate with her. She, he does things in his own speed, in his own time, and he causes almost as much problems as he helps. Uh, but you don't want to mess with him either. No. So, well, um, so Bear Snow is... Um, when Law encounters her, is pretty bare. Um, can you... Uh, she's one of the victims of the else extreme caste system, right? She's another one that is affected by this. Yeah. Um, she's the... Uh, the spoiler. Um, she is one of the um, caste who are specialized in assassinations 
and she has been trained her whole life on how to be an assassin. And I put them things in that I'm not altogether sure people pick up. And one of them is that she's been trained to move without drawing attention to herself. So she can walk through a crowd and nobody in the crowd actually notices her. And it's not so much a genetic thing, it's a hundred-year training on her part. And law being a forager who has to go out and collect um, food in the most dangerous areas actually can vaguely track her. And she always finds it interesting because Bearstow is beautiful and she wears almost no clothing. And yet nobody seems to notice her as she moves through a crowd. And Law hasn't really actually put the pieces together. And since it's from Law's point of view, um, it's not really actually pointed out to the reader that um, Bear Snow has this training to do it. Yeah, it's uh, well, part of the mystery of the story is who is this strange woman that, um, that, that Law has been mysteriously sent to rescue and... and so this story takes us up to where Tinker, the, the novel, begins, I think. Yes, it's basically the same night that Tinker starts. Um, well, let's talk about another great story in the book, which is um, really a, a raucous and fun uh, novella, Pittsburgh Backyard and Garden. Um, this is... P- Pittsburgh Backyard and Garden is a show on television, but it's not your average home makeover show, and it isn't even your average man encounters varmint show either, right? It's kind of this amalgam and a very dangerous amalgam of the two. Yeah, I'm kind of addicted to makeover shows. Um, In certain periods of my life, it was just something that I did a lot was watch a lot of this. It was something that, you know, you could sit on this couch and you could plot things out while that played on the on the TV. And, you know, every now and then you would look up and go, oh, yeah, that looks great. So I kind of have a whole lot of that built into me at the moment. And when I started trying to think of different characters that would appear in Pittsburgh, um, the need for various things to be invented. Uh, One of the things I I realized was there's all this dangerous foreign fauna that I was setting up. There was the black willow, the strangle vines, the the spiders the size of chihuahuas, and, you know, the frost-breathing wards and the the dinosaur-like sarises lots of things that people would have to deal with. And a lot of people are coming and going from Pittsburgh. They're moving in for temporary um, stays, like the college students and the people that work for the EIA. So they wouldn't necessarily know what all the dangers are. So I just kind of, the two collided in my mind. And so Pittsburgh Backyard and Garden is a, a, to show about 
how to deal with these man-eating things that will show up in your backyard. And, uh, and then I just went larger than life with the characters. Um, Hal Rogers is the host, and he's kind of the uh, mashup of Alton Brown and um, I think it's Jamie from Mythbusters. And uh, he's just manic in his cheerfulness of the destruction he gets to wreak because he's trying to kill these dangerous animals. And plants. <laughs> yeah. That are reaching out. And a lot of times his solutions involve flamethrowers and dynamite, right? The more destructive, the happier he is. Yeah. So um, the story is told through our heroine is Jane, um, and she's quite resourceful. In fact, she's kind of the power behind the show, right? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about her? She's a really winning character, I think. Uh, I love Jane. Um, Jane is basically the antithesis of Tinker in that I went the opposite directions with her. So she's tall and she's blonde and she's Nordic um, and short-tempered and she likes to solve her problems with guns. Um, but she's actually very intelligent too and she has this large sprawling family that drives her nuts. But she uh, rules with a, a strong hand so she can keep Hal in check and deal with everything that's thrown at her. Um, her. Her mother's side of the family ran restaurants, so she, her family has this large cooking influence. And she has five brothers, and each one of them is named after an iron chef. And, okay. and when they get together, they cook. But her father was a sniper for the U.S. military, so they all know how to shoot very well, and they're very heavily armed. What is, and, and Jane, um, it's a, a kind of sadness that lies behind the character um, that we find out about during the story, and, and some of the story involves this. Um, her, uh, her youngest sister has, been, has gone missing. Is a missing child. Yeah, when she several years ago, um, she had a baby sister, and when her baby sister was six, um, she disappeared one day while they were downtown, and they never found out what happened to her, and it has impacted the entire family. Um, the mother has this whole "I'm a horrible mother" problem. And the brothers are all, uh, each one of them has their own problems with this. But Jane has nightmares and, and doesn't like getting people too close to her because it triggers the nightmares. Um, so it's quite stressful when she has to let people move in with her because they don't have any choice. And some of these, um, at this moment, um a couple of uh, other reality TV show filmers have, have arrived from Earth after being held out for a long time. 
Can you um, kind of explain the political situation that's going on? We're at the very beginning of of um, what will become the only big move, right? Yeah, because there's this political agendas going on, um, there's a great deal of behind-the-scenes stuff that not everybody is aware of. And one of the things that's happening that Jane and most of the Pittsburghers don't realize is that the Oni have been blocking information out of Alpha. They think that if the humans knew everything about the elves and the planet and everything, there would be either this great big weld of sympathy toward the elves when the war breaks out and large amounts of human troops would be moved in, or that um, if the humans realized how empty the planet is, there would be this... um, Oregon-like invasion. Uh, now let's open up the planet and have homesteading and move in millions of heavily armed humans. And the only don't want either one of those, so they've been stranglehold and have a stranglehold on the information. And one of the people that have noticed is this naturalist team would do nature documentary. And they're like, you know, we've got this entire planet of really bizarre animals, and nobody's doing films on it. And you can't find out information about any of the animals there. And they realize that there's been a black on the information coming out of the planet. So they've pulled strings and gotten themselves to the planet but they had to do it in such a way that they're now a sensationalized um, TV show called Chased by Monsters. So um, what are, you, you go into some of the, the reasons and, and the causes for there being these rather nasty flora and fauna on, um, in Pittsburgh now. Um, including dinosaurs uh, and these uh, really nasty, really big sharks in the river. Um, what, what's the cause of all this? There, you explain some of it in this story. Well, some of it is just the human, the, the, the impact of magic on genetics. It takes something like the porcupine, and you add magic to it, and it gives this power boost to it. So the porcupines are bigger. Um, And the same with everything. The magic has given it kind of this power boost. So it's dangerous in and of itself. Like the strangle vines... Earth actually has a whole range of plants that can move and grab and eat um, things such as um, the Venus five trap and um, there's others. And with the magic boost, it, it becomes 
a big, dangerous creature. And then there are the bioengineered animals that were made, that were weaponized for war. And that that includes a whole realm of monsters. And with the Oni who have been moving in the secret, um, some of the most weaponized uh, of these creatures have been bred up in holding tanks and released without the humans realizing what's going on. So, yes, there's these river sharks. Normally, by now, the humans would have gotten rid of all the river sharks, but the only have been breeding them in captivity and re-releasing them into the, the rivers to make Pittsburgh more dangerous and more um, less attractive as a place to visit. Because they don't want to have to fight a large number of humans. So um, throughout the book, you also have these interludes. I think you call them drabbles. Um, they're a lot of fun, especially, I imagine, to readers who know the characters from the books well. What is a drabble? Well, a drabble is a term that was made up by people who write fan fiction. And basically, it's kind of flash fiction in that it's just a little bit of story, uh, you know, vividly told. There it is. Um, and that's over. And a lot of people use this just to do little vignettes with already established characters. And I, I have read them online and have always kind of been jealous of the freedom that the fan fiction writers have because they don't have to do all the, the scaffolding to get that flash of brilliance, and um, they're quite entertaining, as you said, and I thought, well, I have all these characters and all these scenes that I would like to show, the little flashes of character interaction, but they don't fit in any of the novels I have planned, so I thought, well, why don't I just have fun? I think the fans would like seeing me have fun. So I decided to include them into the whole collection of, no, this really doesn't happen this way. This is just me having fun. Um, strap in, enjoy the ride. Do these, um, are they byproducts of your creative process or are they maybe, do they aid you in any way as you're um, writing ahead? Are they something Some of that, them are just yeah, byproducts. Um, like, I included a dream I had of basically the characters dancing. And I included it because it, it, it just popped in my brain one night. And I just thought it was so funny that I wanted to share it. And some of it, like the, the stuff for Storm Song, I was actually trying to see if there was a novel there that I wanted to write. And I enjoyed what I wrote, 
but I couldn't turn it into a novel. But I wanted to share it because I thought it was cool. And some of it was I started writing like the the story of Wojo where he wakes up and Pittsburgh's gone. Uh, his backyard's totally different. And that was me trying to come up with a short story and I realized I didn't want to write all that, but I still liked the beginning. So, um, yeah, none of the travels are supposed to be taken seriously. They're, you know, bits and pieces of what most people don't see of the writing process. But most people I know who write have them. They just never share them. Well, they're a lot of fun, and they're, I mean, they're pretty fun. They're nicely polished little stones. They're not, you know, just uh, detritus, as it were. <laughs> they're really fun. So I uh, want to briefly touch on the really interesting and kind of touching story of Olivia, uh, who's from Kansas, and I think it's Forrest Moss, who is, um, is he the a leader of Stone Clan or... Anyway, uh, this is a tale of the, both of them are wounded and, and, and getting together. It's really a kind of beautiful character story more than anything. Um, can you tell us a little bit of the, of the setup of that? Yeah, um, I introduced Forrest Moss in uh, Wolf Who Rules. And his backstory was that he was manipulated into using his stone clan abilities to find a connection in between Earth and Onihida, which is the world of the Oni. And it gave them the springboard to get to Earth to start their war um, with the elves over Elfhelm. And uh, he had been captured and tortured and he had been part of a trading party that he was a leader of. Um, and the, everybody else in the party was killed, and he was tortured, and his eye was put out during the torture process. And he managed to escape and warn uh, the king that the Oni were going about to invade through this connection that he had found, and the elves were able to block the initial attack by the Oni. But what they didn't realize was that they had left a good number of them stranded on Earth, and they used that to start this whole second stage, which is the story of Tinker and Elfholm. And when he returned to his society, because he had been such a horrible failure, the whole rule that the Nemana have to protect, well, he failed to protect. And with having failed so spectacularly, he never could attract or join a household. So he's been living on his own for hundreds of years uh, with the grief and the sense of responsibility for the failure that happened, even though in truth 
he was manipulated and didn't realize that what he was doing was basically opening Pandora's box. And Olivia is a young girl who had been raised in a very loving situation. But when she was 10 years old, her mother decided that she wanted to return to her fundamental Christian religion um, in Kansas. So she uprooted Olivia, took her away from the family she'd already known, which was a uh, common law kind of father who didn't have any right to her um, because she was actually genetically somebody else's kid. Somebody else fathered her. He had helped raise her from birth to 10 years old, but he didn't have custody rights. So he couldn't stop her being taken back to Kansas. And in Kansas, her mother joined this cult. Um, who had one of these great big ranches and practice um, multiple marriages. And when she was 15, they put pressure on her to become the fifth wife of this older man. And she caved to all the pressure, agreed to this, willingly married this guy. And then she kept on running into the fact that as the youngest wife, in a society where women really aren't given any power, nobody would listen to her. And a toddler who was the son of another woman was hurt, um, despite her trying to protect him. And then they wouldn't take him to the hospital, and he died. And when she realized she was pregnant and she was going to bring a child in and that it was the child was going to be locked into this society and that she would have very little control over how her child was going to be raised, she decided to run away from home and go as far as possible to you know, separate her from this cult of people, uh, assuming that they would come after her and be unreasonable in how they would come after her. So she found herself in Pittsburgh just days before the gate failed and Pittsburgh became stranded on Elf Home. So she finds herself, she's 16 now, she's pregnant, she has no source of income, and she's on this other planet in the middle of war. And when she realizes that she can maneuver herself into a more secure place by offering uh, basically what she thinks is marriage to Forrest Moss, she does so, and it starts the chain of events. That that make up the, the, the tale <laughs> in the book. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, my next question sort of is, is maybe two in one. I wanted to find out what you were working on, but in the last novella... Um, we see Law and Bear Snow again in threads that bind and break. 
this story goes into the origin of all else, and um, it seems that um, it's it's uh, kind of a setup for what we're going to see in the next cell phone book. Is that right? And what what is that setup? What's going on in the story? Yeah, um, the last story, the threads that bind and break, basically um, ties everything together um, because we had most of the characters that Tinker and Windwolf and Oil Can and Tommy um, in Elf Home. And then we had Louise and Jillian in the Wood Sprites. And it wasn't totally clear how those two books merged together at the end. And I needed to kind of get all the characters who are in Project Elf Home, all those characters in all three books on the same page. So when the next book, Harbinger, starts, everybody's on the same page, um, time-wise. And so the story had a lot of things it had to do. And so Law basically finds out that uh, things like she witnesses the um, the gossamer go to pick up Louise and Jillian. But her main story is is that um, she realizes that the skin clans are planning a major attack and that if she doesn't stop it, it would trigger, it would break down the uh, the ties between the elves and the humans, because the only were going to basically um, do an attack and blame the elves, and it probably would have worked. Uh, so the Skin Clan is the clan that that originally bred the elves as slaves. And they're they're not yeah. entirely obliterated. Then there there might be a legacy that lives. Yeah. <laughs> when unbeknownst to most people, I think at this point, um, after five books, you start losing track yourself. But a few people have realized that the Skin Clan, after the war of the rebellion, some of them fled to Odihida and it's actually the skin clan who are manipulating the Oni into the invasion of Elfholm. And one of the reasons why the Oni are so monstrous is that the skin clan have been doing their experiments much as they had with the elves, but with an eye more toward weaponizing the Oni race so that they can be used against the elves. The Oni are kind of uh, Chinese uh, demon creatures. Is that a good characterization? Yeah, I'm basically using a lot of the um, Asian mythology for the the base of the um, the Oni. But I'm taking it in directions that 
doesn't really support the whole concept of these are Chinese. Um, yes, the the initial push from Onihida into um, onto Earth and then through um, onto off home is through China. That's where they found the initial connection. So the Onis that were trapped on Earth were trapped in China. Um, so they basically took over much of the Chinese government and have been operating in secret for the last few decades um, doing things like building the gate that initially uh, triggers the problem. And they're doing a lot of behind-the-scenes the, uh, kind of things, not all of which has been revealed yet. Uh, so uh, is Harbinger what you're working on at the moment? Um, what, what are you working on while you're ducking hurricanes? At the very moment... I'm trying to finish up uh, a steampunk novel with airship pirates and zombies called The Disharmony of the Spheres. Oh, cool. And uh, I just finished up with The Black Wolves of Boston, which will be out in February. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. Um, and I'm sketching details of Harbinger, but I actually haven't started it yet. Um, it's looming massive in the horizon. Um, when you're doing a series, occasionally you, you're kind of overwhelmed with, oh my God, um, it's so complex by now because it's grown and it's grown and it's grown. And I need to, you know, have a full, complete standalone novel that comes to an end but has all this funneling in because... You know, I started out just Tinker as a point of view, and then I added Windwolf, and then I added Oil Can and Tommy, and then Louise, and now for Project Elfilm, I've got all these other characters. And of course, the fans want to see them all, and I want to tell a story that includes all of them, but I also don't want to write a novel that's, you know, 2,000 pages long. <laughs> So I'm a little bit boggled as to how I'm going to do this, and I'm sketching out notes on how to do it. Uh, well, you always seem to pull it off, um, and we are really looking forward to that. And we uh, and right now the book is Project Elf Home by Wynn Spencer, which is now out at booksellers everywhere. A lot of great pieces of uh, of tales and wonder from from the Elf Home series. Wynn, thank you so much for being with us, and please take care with these hurricanes bearing in on you. <laughs> it should miss us. The, uh, the path they showed of both hurricanes, one goes to the south and the other one's supposed to go to the north. So we'll get a lot of rain. We've already started the rain. Um, but we'll get a lot of rain and wind and hopefully the worst of it won't hit us. Um, we go through this every summer, and it's scary, but we're rarely hit hard. Um, and the biggest problem is we're island, and uh, 
it, it's very easy to isolate us. Uh, if the hurricane hits in the wrong place, it can take out our port in our airport in one hit because uh, they're half a mile apart. And there's only two ports and two airports on the island. Uh, and the electrical system isn't redundant. So if it damages the, um, the electrical system at any point on the island, it's down for the whole island. And that's also the true for um, the telephone service. You know, one tower down takes out the entire system and we're without cell phones. So it's really easy to isolate us completely. And we're fine. We're just running out of toilet paper until everything gets put back right. Yeah. Well, take, thank you for taking the time out to, to speak with us while, uh, while all this craziness is going on. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I really enjoy being able to talk about my books. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyberspy Adele Mundy. The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. Chapter 9 Bergen and Associates Shipyard, Cinnabar There'll be some who say she looks dumpy, Daniel said in the interval while the first load of cargo was stowed in the Kaisha's hold and the second low boy waited on the key. Adele sat on the bed of the emptied vehicle. Mon says she's handy, but he means handy for a tramp freighter, of course. In fact, the Kaisha looked dumpy to Daniel also, just as she would to anyone used to the slender lines of warships. Warships didn't carry cargo, and short, fat cylinders provided much greater interior volume than long, thin ones. Given your record of success, Adele said. She was working on something with her personal data unit. She didn't look up. I can't imagine anyone objecting to your choice of a ship. I don't object. Daniel wondered what Adele's personal opinion of the Kaisha, or of the Princess Cecile, was, or even if she had one. Most people thought of familiar machines in human terms, as though they had will or even personalities. Adele didn't appear to do that. Are your quarters satisfactory, Daniel said. I'm asking because you wouldn't complain if there was something wrong. Quite satisfactory, Adele said. Her control wands moved and paused, adjusting the data on the holographic screen before her. I have a bed, which converts rather neatly into a chair and desk. 
Further, I think it is very unlikely that it will rain aboard the Kaisha, as it did a number of times during the period when I often slept in culverts. The reaction mass piping doesn't pass near the bridge quarters, Daniel said. I suppose it's possible that the bunks I've added in the cargo hold might be flooded, but your rank hath its privileges, cramped though those privileges might be. There were four curtained bunk alcoves, calling them cabins would have been silly, in the bridge compartment. Daniel had allotted them to himself, Vessie the first mate, Corey the second mate, and Adele. Corey had offered his alcove to Pasternak, who had accepted it gladly. The off-duty crew was intended to bunk in the triple stacks against the port and starboard outer bulkhead at the rear of the compartment. Because the Kaisha was heavily overcrewed on this voyage, Daniel had added additional accommodation in the hold. Their cargo of carbines and automatic impellers would probably be valuable to the transformationists, but it was primarily aboard to conceal the real purpose of the voyage. The crates didn't begin to fill the available volume. Daniel wondered what Adele was working on. It might not directly bear on the voyage, but he had come to accept her belief that there was no useless information, at least not if you had a librarian as skilled as Adele Mundy to sift the data when need arose. Send the next load, Pasternak shouted from the main hatch. Last load, the straw boss from the shipyard bellowed back. He and his team of three began shifting crates of weapons from the second low boy to the conveyor, which in turn rumbled the cases toward the Kaisha's hatch. Pasternak, as chief of ship, was responsible for striking the cargo away in the hold, though most of the involved personnel were riggers, Wochins herself among them. Vessi was at the command console for the present, though Daniel planned to take the Kaisha up to get the feel of his new vessel. Loading should be complete in three hours, Daniel said, his eyes on the ship. If Cleveland is aboard by then, I intend to lift off as soon thereafter as I can. The dorsal A antenna was extended as usual in harbor to provide a vantage point, but it should take only minutes to lower it and lock it into its cradle. There was a panoramic camera at the masthead, courtesy of Adele's other employers. The installation probably made the Kaisha unique among tram freighters, but no one would examine the ship carefully enough to notice unless they were already very suspicious. He and Lieutenant Corey have left Cleveland House, Adele said. The tram system estimates they should arrive. Her wands twitched the air. Within two minutes. You're in touch with Corey, Daniel said, hoping that he kept irritation out of his tone. He had sent Corey and Hale to meet their passenger and accompany him back to the shipyard. He had sent Hogg as well, rather than a husky spacer or two. Hogg wasn't polished, but he was used to operating in urbane society. Generally, that involved keeping his mouth shut and being ignored. A large countryman who happened to be traveling in the same tram car as two young gentlemen and a lady of the same class. No, said Adele. She must have heard something in his voice, because she turned to face him for the first time since she had sat down on the low boy. Tovera asked if she might go with Corey and Hale. Ordinarily, she wouldn't have left me alone, but she seemed to think I would be safe enough so long as I didn't leave the shipyard. I see, said Daniel. I apologize for, well, for being surprised. He thought Adele smiled as she returned to her display, but he wasn't sure. Even if she were smiling, he might have read the expression in her eyes rather than on her tight lips. I didn't specifically thank you for disobeying me last night, Daniel said, though that was overstating his request to Adele before he went to snatch Cleveland back. 
Ah, and Tovera was very well behaved, which I noticed. I've never known Tovera to disobey any direction I gave her, Adele said in the direction of her display. She doesn't expect to understand all of them, and of course she often doesn't. She simply accepts my decisions and carries them out to the best of her ability. That's quite a responsibility, Daniel said. He had to raise his voice. The crates holding the automatic impellers were moving up the conveyor. Their steel straps clacked like gunfire on the rollers. Adele looked toward him again. For an instant, there was nothing at all in her face, but he had the impression that her eyes were on things in the distant past. Daniel, she said, it's exactly the same responsibility as I carry for the pistol in my pocket. Neither one in their association with me has ever killed anyone without my direction. Right, Daniel said, looking away. He was watching his crew slide the cargo aboard and stow it in the sternhold, but that was simply an excuse. Missiles launched at Daniel's command had almost certainly killed more people than his friend had with her pistol. But Daniel hadn't been watching his victims' faces when they died. Scores of times, hundreds of times, sometimes so close that their blood splashed back in a red shower. Daniel, Adele said to his profile. He turned back toward her in surprise. How do you plan to take your leave from Miranda? We, uh, did that last night he said awkwardly. Well, this morning at the townhouse. I think it's easier on her if she doesn't come to the harbor, you see. Adele nodded. Miranda asked me to tell you at a suitable time that she disagrees with you there, she said. The decision is yours, of course, but you have nothing really to do for the next two hours, and your fiancé is waiting in Mon's office. What? Daniel said, looking up at the bank of windows. Adele went back to her data unit. She didn't respond because there was nothing really to respond to. Right, said Daniel. I am the captain of the Kaisha, and I make the decisions on anything to do with the ship and its crew. He rose to his feet. If you will, Officer Mundy, Daniel said. Inform Lieutenant Vesey that I'll be back in two hours. Until then, she is to do whatever she feels is necessary to prepare the Kaisha for immediate departure. Daniel strode toward the main building. Ricard Cleveland had just entered the shipyard with his escort. Daniel waved, but that was nothing the Kaisha's captain need concern himself with either. Not for two hours, at least. That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. Thanks to Audible.com, to Christopher Rocchio, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Jodkowitz. And a bottle of anti-typhoon hurricane be gone, plus a lava lamp filled with actual lava in superheated margarine, spelling out words of thanks and praise in a goopy but very cool 70s font for Wen Spencer, the author of Project Elf Home. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 